Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do a companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net if you have suggestions for topics guests and other ideas please send them to info@scientificsense.com and i can be reached at gil@epen.info My guest today is Professor Benedict Albensey, who is a professor and chair of the Department of Pharmaceutical Sciences and the co-director of the Brain Center at the Nova Southeastern University. His research interests include factors involving aging, cognition, and Alzheimer's disease, such as nuclear factor kappa B, a mediator of inflammation, but also required molecule for memory. Welcome, Ben. Hello, how are you? Yeah, thanks for doing this. So, I want to start with one of your recent papers. Um, what is nuclear factor kappa B doing in and to the mitochondrion? Uh, you see in this paper, a large body of literature supports the idea that nuclear factor kappa B signaling contributes to not only immunity but also inflammation, cancer, and nervous system function. However, studies on nuclear factor kappa B activity in mitochondrial function are much more limited and scattered throughout the literature. So, so before we get the details of this, Ben, um, I want to sort of define mitochondria uh, and then talk about how NF-kappa B is actually affecting the mitochondrial function. Sure, so first let me just thank you again for having me. This is a great opportunity to uh, let you know about what we're working on. So I've been working on uh, really memory and Alzheimer's disease for over 25 years. And I got involved in NF-kappa B, which is a protein. It's a specialized protein. In fact, it's a transcription factor. And transcription factors are proteins that go into the DNA and they turn genes on or off. So they have a very specialized function. But I started working on this when I was a postdoctoral fellow in Mark Matson's lab in Kentucky. Mark moved on, of course, and he went to Johns Hopkins and became one of the chiefs at the National Institutes of Aging, part of the NIH. And so uh, Mark got me involved in this probably about 25 years ago. But NF-kappa B was very interesting. We started working on this uh, in his lab and then on my own. So we've done a lot of studies in brain injury and Alzheimer's, 
but also in memory. And we, we find complex roles. We find roles that are uh, seemingly contradictory in some cases. So it's a very interesting molecule, but it's also an ancient molecule. Uh, so that's, you know, kind of a, just a summary of what NF-kappa-B is. But then the other work I started doing more recently, nine or 10 years ago, is the work with the mitochondria. And the mitochondria, I mean, the best way to think about it is that they're really uh, biological batteries. They're really uh, the energy currency. You know, they supply ATP, and that's the name of a molecule, adenosine triphosphate. And it's when that molecule gets cleaved and broken down, that energy is released. And it's a very complicated process that occurs in the mitochondria, specifically in the electron transport chain. And so there are various protein complexes that are comprised of different subunits um, where this electron transfer occurs. And in, in this uh, process, not only are electrons transferred, but a proton gradient. So somewhat similar to what we see in an electronic circuit, we have capacitance. So there's the buildup of energy in the cell membrane. Um, but, but the complex process results in the production of ATP. And in doing so, we consume oxygen. In fact, this is the, the major reason we have to breathe oxygen and air is so that we can use that molecular oxygen in a complex and complex four in the electron transport chain in the mitochondria, which I, which I just said is like a biological battery. So let me, let me see if I can understand this, Ben. So is mitochondria more like a generator? Uh, in other words, it's actually sort of creating energy and packaging it in ATP. And it, when ATP is sort of broken down, that, that energy is released. Is that a way to think about it? Yeah, those are good things. And that's all correct. I, sh I should just also mention, I got intrigued by mitochondria for a few reasons. And mitochondria are also ancient in their appearance and our evolutionary history. And, and so because of that, um, you know, they're very much like bacteria. And at one point it's hypothesized that they invaded single-celled uh, prokaryotes and became part of it uh, and worked together in a symbiosis as it were. Yeah, so uh, more advanced organisms somehow um, co-opted <laughs> this ancient thing uh, that seemed like uh, very beneficial. Actually now it's necessary condition for all these organisms to really survive. So, so going back to nuclear factor kappa B, uh, it somehow affects the functioning of mitochondria? It certainly does. And that's one of the things that I, I started working on and started thinking about. In fact, we just, I just published a review paper on this that's been well received and almost 100,000 people have viewed it and it's been cited quite a bit, but I really wanted to look more closely at how NF-kappa B affected mitochondria, especially in a context of aging and Alzheimer's disease. And so what I found after reviewing the literature and, and some of the work was our own too, um, is that there are several sites in the mitochondria that NF-kappa B appears to be interacting with. Several sites. So when it interacts with mitochondria, it, it, that is, uh, Obviously, as you see here, NF-kappa-B has significant effects on a variety of systems, including CNS and, uh, and inflammation and immunity and so on. So when NF-kappa-B interacts with mitochondria, is that a negative effect? 
Well, that's a very good question and it just depends. So the short answer is that it can be beneficial and, uh, and also detrimental. In many cases, NF-kappa-B is activated as part of an inflammatory process. Now, inflammation is complicated. Short-term inflammation is generally beneficial for the cell and for the body because it's, it's, it's part of our immune response. And it's, it's a reaction to pathogens, but it's also involved in pain and healing. But it's when we have chronic inflammation that we have problems. And in fact, it's interesting because inflammation seems to be central, not only to, not only to Alzheimer's, but also to cancer. So, you know, diseases like cancer and Alzheimer's are often seemingly at the opposite ends of the spectrum, but, but inflammation does seem to be a common denominator in both cancer and, and Alzheimer's in many cases. Uh, so that's one thing. Um, so it, it's a critical player. Uh, NF-kappa-B is a critical player in the mitochondria functioning both in a positive way, but also uh, there are many uh, negative pathways that are stimulated or activated. Hmm. Yeah, I remember vaguely, Ben, I, I was in a pharmaceutical company in the 90s. Uh, I was on the business side, I wasn't a scientist. I remember, you know, people sort of saying, uh, you could think about Alzheimer's as sort of an inflammation of the brain. Uh, is that still sort of the thinking or have, have you moved on from there? No, I don't think we've moved on. If anything, the, uh, the literature is intensified. But I will say this, is that many years ago, uh, cancer was uh, like a death sentence. We, we kind of lumped all the cancers into one bag. But as we progressed in our thinking with cancer, especially with new treatments, we started realizing that you could treat different types of cancer in different ways. And some cancers became survivable. And so, and part of the, you know, the rationale and the scientific progress was in the fact that we are able to diagnose and differential uh, uh, treat cancer and the types of cancer differently, right? And so skin cancer is different than, than other types of cancer, of course, and kidney cancer and leukemia is quite different. And I think we have to start thinking about Alzheimer's in the same way. So what I mean is that I think there's various types of Alzheimer's. And for some types of Alzheimer's, inflammation seems to be a central component. Yeah, inflammation appears central to a lot of diseases. Um, and so the effect of a nuclear factor kappa B on inflammation is sort of a, a red flag, isn't it? <laughs> uh, not only in mitochondria, but elsewhere in the body. Yeah. So, I mean, what, you know, what we haven't talked about, we talk about what mitochondria are, they're like bi biological batteries. Um, but the thing is, is that NF-kappa B can enter the mitochondria and interact to regulate certain mitochondrial processes. So one of the things that the mitochondria do that's really more or less unique is that they have these so-called biodynamic processes. And these are processes of both fission and fusion. And there's different environmental stimuli or there's also cellular stimuli that regulate fission versus fusion. And in some cases we can regulate, or I'm sorry, we can associate more fission with certain diseases. So NF-kappa B appears to interact with uh, sites and also proteins in some cases that are involved in the fusion process. So in other words, two mitochondria fusing together. Then in other cases, we have mitochondria that are dividing. So it's a fission process. Um, and there are different reasons for why the mitochondria do that. And again, 
it's a result of different stimuli uh, or stressors. So that, that is one interaction that occurs that NF-kappa B appears to trigger is that it does seem to interact with a protein involved infusion and that's called OPA1 or OPA1. Yeah, without knowing anything about it, uh, uh, Ben, the, the, the inflammation, uh, so for example, immunity, you talk about immunity here, uh, but also inflammation. Yeah, sometimes inflammation is a response to the body to, to, to some sort of infection, right? So uh, it, it's a complex picture, isn't it? It is, that's right. And, and usually it's a, a time dependent thing. So, you know, short periods of inflammation usually are helpful, but it's that chronic inflammation that seems to be detrimental and associated with so many uh, diseases, especially age-related disease. Yeah, so I don't know if this is the right way to think about it, Ben. So, you know, I'm thinking as you age, do we see sort of mitochondrial function declining in terms of energy production? Well, that's an excellent question. And of course we do, because we all know that as we get older, it's harder for us to find the energy to complete, you know, our routine tasks and day-to-day and -day living, especially in our, in the, you know, really the, the 80s and 90s, it becomes a really a central focus is that we don't have enough energy sometimes to even get out of bed or walk. And so it is, it, it is a huge player. Um, as we age. So is there some sort of therapeutic approach here, Ben? I'm just speculating. I, I know nothing about it. So if nuclear factor kappa B has a beneficial effect on mitochondria, um, or you say it's a beneficial and detrimental effect, so we can we take the beneficial part of it and pump uh, something into the mitochondria as we age to keep the generator going at a faster rate? Well, that's such a, a fascinating idea. And so I can say that there's really, um, over the last 10, 15 years, there have been a lot of companies, startup companies that have been thinking about how can we modulate mitochondria, not only in Alzheimer's, but in cancer, in the so-called primary mitochondrial disorders, which are largely genetic. Um, so there've been a lot of startup companies, a lot of interest in, in the industrial sector about how to modulate mitochondria. So one group of companies seem to use molecules like traditional drug discovery and development. They'll use some sort of molecule to enhance uh, mitochondrial function. Then there's other companies um, that are working on transplantation and transfer of mitochondria. And we've been involved in some of that work ourselves. So we've been doing both. We've been looking at compounds like creatine to enhance mitochondrial function, but we've also transplanted mitochondria from the liver and transplanted, uh, and well, in this case, in our case, uh, uh, injected uh, mitochondria in vivo, but some people, or I'm sorry, in, in the bloodstream, um, but some people are transplanting mitochondria from one part of the body to another. So for example, Dr. McCulley at Harvard had transplanted some mitochondria from a healthy part of the heart into an ischemic part of the heart in a pediatric patient and improved outcome. So that's really kind of what got the ball rolling. I forget when that was exactly, 10 years ago or so. Uh, he formed a company and others have formed the company based on that research over the years. <coughs> yeah, sorry, moving uh, biological batteries around to, uh, to, to mend uh, areas that doesn't work, areas that don't work. So 
uh, when you transfer though from one human to another, we, we go through all the rejection problems that we have elsewhere, right? Yeah, well, that's that's those are challenges that have to be resolved yet. So uh, going from cell to cell or going from organ to organ or going from person to person. So these are all uh, real uh, challenges that have to be overcome in transfer transplantation therapy. But there are, like I said, there are a number of companies working on these things, uh, not only looking at molecules and modulate function, but also processes to try to enhance transfer transplantation. So you can guess that there's lots of uh, obstacles that have to be overcome yet. Yeah, it's a very interesting area. So I want to go into one of your earlier papers from 2000, evidence for the involvement of TNF and nuclear factor kappa B in hippocampi synaptic plasticity. Uh, you see in this paper, the cytokine tumor necrosis factor, TNF, well known for its roles in cellular responses to tissue injury, has recently been shown to be produced in response to uh, physiological activity in neuronal circuits. DNF stimulates uh, receptors in neurons linked to the activation of a transcription factor kappa B, and recent findings suggest that the signaling pathway can modulate neuronal excitability and vulnerability of neurons to excitotoxicity. So this is sort of a dance that's happening, isn't it? So TNF and nuclear factor kappa B in the brain. Yeah, so when I was a postdoctoral fellow in Dr. Mark Matson's lab that I just mentioned a few minutes ago, he introduced me to NF kappa B and he asked me to work on a project. And my training originally, I have a PhD in neuroscience and my training initially was in both uh, electrophysiology, which is measuring electrical activity in cells and brain slices. And then the other training I received as a, uh, you know, early in my career was with medical imaging. Uh, so MRI and, and that sort of thing. So he asked me to investigate NF-kappa-B's role in memory and synaptic plasticity. And that was really a novel idea at the time. Uh, up until that point, most people were looking at NF-kappa-B in cancer. And it's associated with inflammation and, and, and with that, like we just talked about. But Mark was interested in the idea that NF-kappa-B played a role in the brain and in the nervous system. And these ideas were very novel. In, in, in some cases, he was actually encountering a lot of resistance. Um, and so it was a bit controversial. But I was the first to show that NF-kappa-B was actually required for normal synaptic plasticity in the hippocampus. And this was really quite surprising. So before this, there were other transcription factors that people have looked at. So for example, uh, Kandel looked at CREB. And CREB is a well-known transcription factor. And he showed in the sea slug uh, that it was required for, for memory. And he showed this uh, in a variety of different ways, but he also married this whole discipline of psychology to biology and kind of connected, uh, created a bridge between these disciplines because before that they were really quite separate. So NF-kappa-B is similar to CREB in some ways is that it's required for synaptic plasticity uh, and memory, but it, but it plays this other role that we've been talking about. And that's that it's, it plays a role in brain injury and stroke and head trauma, Alzheimer's and, and cancer. So, you know, these are complex processes and it's hard to explain it in just a few minutes, but I can tell you that part of the reason it's able to do what it does is that it's cell specific and it's time dependent. So for example, NF-kappa-B can be pro 
uh, protective in nerve cells, but inflammatory in the glial cells, pro-inflammatory in astroglia and some of these glial cells. So that's one of the ways in which it's able to have these dual functions. Hmm. This is part of the evolutionary baggage problem. <laughs> you pick something up for beneficial effects, but wow. then there are detrimental effects to that. That the, It right. comes in a package, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. So, so you have a, uh, you, you mentioned a study here on mice, um, uh, LTD, um, it's a sort of a long-term depression of synaptic transmission um, in uh, wild-type mice. So, so what, what do you find in the study? Yeah, so there are a couple things in that study. Again, this is the study I did in Mark Matson's lab. And so you mentioned TNF. Well, TNF is an activator of this pathway. And, and a good way to think about some of this is to think of it like traffic. And you can have, uh, you know, there's different intermediate steps that lead to the activation of kappa B. And TNF is one of the activators. And there's different receptors for this molecule TNF. In fact, some people have shown even recently that by blocking TNF, uh, you can reduce some of the pathological consequences of stroke and head trauma. Because like I said, TNF is an activator of this NF-kappa-B pathway. So that's part of it. The other part of it is that I had studied uh, one of the ways in which to test TNF-alpha and NF-kappa-B was to do some brain slice electrophysiology. So what does that mean? Well, by cutting slices out of the hippocampus, the hippocampus is a region of the brain that's important for encoding new memories you can actually take a slice out of the brain and keep it alive for many hours. And there's lots of different tricks to doing that, but that's essentially what I did uh, in this preparation. And by doing this, you can stimulate one part of the uh, slice and record electrical activity from another part of the slice. So basically you can measure activity in microcircuits and you get a readout. And the readout is similar to what you see in a, a EEG electroencephalograph. So basically you're looking at um, electrical activity and you're looking at waveforms. And so we can stimulate part of the uh, slice at high frequency stimulation. And this high frequency stimulation replicates the type of stimulation we have internally when we're learning something new. And so by, by using high frequency stimulation, we can get the one cell to talk to another set of cells in the brain slicer in the brain. And, and so that, that's kind of the approach that we use, that I used to test if NF-kappa B was requir required for synaptic plasticity. And, and then really the, the exper experimental paradigm I'm referring to is called LTP or long-term potentiation. And what long-term potenti potentiation is, is a way of stimulating the circuit and seeing a long-lasting increase in the millivolt potential uh, that one records using these electrodes. Now, LTD, you mentioned LTD, long-term depression. This has nothing to do with depression that we see in, in humans being sad and that sort of thing. What it is, is that it's a dynamic and it's something that we can measure at the cellular level. And it's really the opposite of LTP. So we have LTP, exciting neurons, having long-lasting potentiation, resulting in new circuits, 
memories are being encoded, and LTD is the reverse. So as you could guess, as we get older, or as we have Alzheimer's disease and these, these diseases that are involved in memory impairments, there's more LTD and less LTP. So it's this dynamic that works together on the microcircuit on the synaptic plasticity level. Yes, as you're talking, Ben, I, I remember something else uh, from late 90s in this pharmaceutical company. There was a product that being pursued, and I remember P50. <laughs> Maybe oh. I, I'm thinking about something else. And, and the idea was in a severe head trauma, you can give this product to the patient to keep the brain active uh, during that journey to the hospital. So that you know, half an hour, forty-five minute um, uh, timeline. Um, the, the idea of the product was to to keep the brain from you know collapsing, so to speak. Does that sound <laughs> does that sound right? Well, I'm not sure. P50 is a subunit of NF kappa B, but I don't know of any drugs in the '90s that were targeting that, so I'm not exactly sure. Um, so I didn't really describe it, but the NF-kappa-B protein is a complex. It actually, actually has three subunits, uh, and there's variations. One very common um, grouping or complex is the P50 subunit, a P65 subunit, and another subunit called I-kappa-B. So these three subunits are found uh, in the inactive form in the cytoplasm. So the I-kappa-B subunit is, uh, is really there to act as a kind of a mask. And by having that, that third subunit, it actually keeps NF-kappa-B in an inactive state. So there are different triggers, as I said earlier, like TNF-alpha is uh, a trigger that can get some of this NF-kappa-B activation going. Um, so there are intermediate steps that we don't have time to discuss, but by phosphorylating or biochemically changing the I-kappa-B, you can get that to degrade, which leaves just a dimer, two subunits. Once that dimer is exposed, that dimer can then translate it, or not translate, but translocate itself into the nucleus. And it's in the nucleus where it can bind to the DNA and then turn genes on or off. So I don't know if the drug that you saw in the 90s was related to that or not. It could be. Yeah, uh, yeah, I'm not sure, <laughs> uh, but I remember P50 for whatever reason, um, and uh, you know there appeared to be a big market. Uh, so, are you aware of any um, any any uh, sort of commercial activity in this area to to, to keep the brain? Uh, I'm, I'm specifically thinking head trauma to give it more time before treatment. Well, that's a very good question. And so there's several things going on with both stroke and head trauma, different types of brain injuries. And, you know, we have the primary injury. That's really what describes the, the first stage in head trauma, where you have some sort of hit to the head. It could be a blunt impact, like a baseball bat, or it can be a penetrating injury, like a bullet. So that's the primary injury. But then really biochemically and from a drug point of view, we have to think about the secondary injury. So the primary injury is the, the anatomical distortion, but, it, but that, what that results in is so-called secondary injury. So you have a whole host of biochemical steps, intermediates, and processes that are stimulated. A lot of those involve calcium. You have excessive calcium. 
and this excessive calcium that's being released will trigger all these pathological processes. And again, some of it's inflammatory, some of it is, is good to see because it's part of the healing process, but chronically and on a long-term basis, inflammation is not a good thing. So that's kind of the, you know, what's happening with secondary injury. And so many drug companies and people studying this will look for molecules that can interfere with that secondary injury to reduce the overall pathological impact um, from some of these cascades get, uh, getting overly amplified. Mm. Uh, I don't know much about this, Ben, and I just also think, I just want to touch on one other thing. So all the metabolic syndrome diseases, type 2 diabetes, hypertension, and so on, they all seem to have a very strong correlation, at the very least, to inflammation. So are there therapeutic approaches there, too, uh, through nuclear factor kappa B? Yeah, so there are several overlaps, and this is what's interesting to me. So I said earlier that like cancer, if we subdivide cancer into different types that might, you know, enhance our treatment potential. And I think Alzheimer's is similar, although we're not as far along with our thinking in Alzheimer's as we are in cancer. So what if we break down Alzheimer's into four or five types? We could do that. We could talk about genetic causes. And there's some genes that there's very solid evidence that you will get Alzheimer's if you have these genes. Uh, Rudy Tanzi at Harvard has described some of the genetics and Alzheimer's many years ago, and he continues to work in this area. But then there's other things like inflammation, and we talked about inflammation. Um, and then there's also toxins and, and, and other things that we, you know, that we might experience in our environment that could lead to different types of dementia uh, also. So, so I think that, again, it's, it's important to, to kind of subdivide more carefully different types of Alzheimer's. So if we're talking about metabolism, brain metabolism and, and mitochondrial bioenergetics, then we're kind of you know, refining our approach a bit. And there's certainly overlap in metabolic disorders and some types of Alzheimer's. And in fact, some people years ago started calling Alzheimer's type three diabetes. So type one is like the juvenile onset, type two is the adult onset. And some people went as far as to say that type three might be Alzheimer's disease. I think that's a bit too much of a, a generality, but there's certainly that overlap. And so like, for example, one of the things that we see overlapping is sometimes this is insulin insensitivity that you see in diabetes. So there are these molecules and pathways that seem to be that you know, diabetes experts are targeting and trying to understand more that we also see sometimes in some types of Alzheimer's and that's very interesting. Mm -hmm. But certainly the mitochondria appear to be a common denominator in both uh, diabetes and Alzheimer's. Yeah, it's really exciting. I remember somebody on the podcast been talking about last year, actually delivering insulin directly to the brain um, you know, this idea of type 3 diabetes of the brain uh, question. Uh, have you seen anything that, in that direction? Yes, yeah, so I have a, a colleague in Winnipeg, Canada that, that studies this. And, uh, you know, these people are real experts, not me on diabetes, but, um, but they're making progress uh, with understanding molecules and different approaches for trying to enhance, uh, in some cases, the positive signaling pathways and in other cases to inhibit those pathways that lead to cell death and, and, and further amplify inflammation. 
Yeah, so all your work here, Ben, you know, I'm thinking nuclear factor Kappa V is more like a platform that has so many different effects in so many different systems on the body, right? And so, yeah, one, yeah. sorry, uh, go ahead. Yeah. One way of thinking of it is to think of it as a master regulator, and yeah. it's been called that before. Um, and of course, and mitochondria, like in that paper that I published a couple of years ago on what's NF-kappa B doing in the mitochondria, you know, it, it looks at NF-kappa B's role in the mitochondria, but we always have to remember there's other transcription factors, in many cases doing other functions at the same time. So the complexity is really a bit overwhelming. But, but, you know, like I said, one of the reasons I like looking at NF-kappa B and the mitochondria is that both are ancient in their appearance in the biological record. And for me, that has special significance, uh, that they've been around quite a long time. And because of that, I think that it's important to think about them not only in disease, but also as a part of the immune system, also as a, as a root for memory. So we can think about memory as part of human intelligence, but we can also talk about forms of cellular memory. We can talk about memory associated with the antibody response, right? And so looking at it from that perspective, uh, these factors become very interesting um, to study more critically. Mm. That's really interesting. So antibody response, so we are in the midst of COVID <laughs> that, that hasn't gone away yet. And uh, we have to keep taking these boosters. Um, it, it seems like that the memories, uh, the half-life of the body's memory uh, is like three months or something along those lines. So is it possible for us to boost that somehow? Well, those are excellent. That's an excellent question. And I think that people are working on these sorts of things. And of course, you know, the immune system is incredibly complex as well. And I don't pretend to be an expert in immune function. What I know about is what I've learned from my studies at NF-kappa B, but we do have different types of immunity. We have acquired immunity and we have innate immunity. And the biological response and the molecules that are involved in these different types sometimes are different, but they are, but they are there are mechanisms for recognizing pathogens and threats and, and bacteria and viruses. Um, the other thing that should be said, though, of course, is that our ability to have a strong immune system fades as we get older. And that's, uh, that has proved critical in COVID and because so many of the people that died were older uh, or had a comorbidity, right? So, um, you know, many of us that, that I, I did not get COVID, fortunately, but many of those that did get COVID uh, and did not have a serious reaction were, were younger people, as as we you know we can see now from the clinical data. Yeah, it's really interesting. So this general effect on memory, nuclear factor kappa B, it's not only you know sort of the brain memory, but really the body's ability to remember uh, information to fight off future infections. It's more of a holistic memory function, right? Yeah, it's interesting. Um, I, I think you're right. There are, are these specific mechanisms, again, that we see uh, when, study, when one studies the immune system and we, we see different mechanisms that are there to recognize threats uh, and to remember threats. And, and that's what's fascinating is that some of our human intelligence 
may have its very roots in these cellular processes that evolved over eons of time. Yeah, this is pure speculation. Perhaps in the future, when you take that vaccine, maybe you get a shot of nuclear factor kappa B along with it. <laughs> so the body can remember. Well, that's that's an interesting idea. I think some people are actually looking at NF-kappa B uh, as a potential treatment uh, because of its role in inflammation. And inflammation has played such a critical role in um, in COVID, especially respiratory, uh, you know, effects and pathology, right? Yeah. So, so I want to finish up with one of your papers uh, that are related to this, but it also has another angle here. So chronic dietary creatine enhances uh, hippocampal spatial memory, bioenergetics, and levels of plasticity-related proteins associated with nuclear, nuclear factor kappa B. I saw something in the literature, Ben, um, I don't know if you saw this, like just a couple of weeks ago, about creatine being a very important <laughs> uh, important uh, product that you know people may want to sort of substitute like vitamins. Uh, so, so where are we on this now? Yeah, so I gave a seminar on this last year. It's part of the Alzheimer's Association webinar series. In fact, I was on a I'm on a team with the Alzheimer's Association. We all took turns giving these. Uh, seminars and I talk about creatine and I looked at the clinical evidence and I looked at the animal data. And so overall, uh, creatine is a mixed bag. And so creatine has been found to have no effect in some conditions like Parkinson's disease. But then in other cases, it seemed to have some benefit like in head trauma. Uh, also, there's uh, some clinical studies that looked at children versus adults that looked at males versus females. And interestingly, uh, there were some sex-based differences in the effectiveness of creatine. Now, my lab found some of those differences that surprised us. We found that creatine seemed to have more um, uh, efficacy in female mice than males. And in fact, in some cases, it seemed like it made the male mice worse, which surprised us. And the clinical data follows somewhat of the same sort of um, uh, pattern is that in some cases it improved working memory in females, maybe had no change in males. So again, it's complex. Um, and there was some, I think there was a clinical study where they looked at children and it had some benefit in children too. But the devil's in the details. So I encourage you to go to that webinar I gave that's on the Alzheimer's Association website for webinars and that I think it was February in 2000, um, 20 that I gave that. Yeah, the gender difference is quite interesting. Uh, so do males produce, naturally produce more creatine compared to females? So creatine is largely, uh, uh, you know, generated from the Fuji beef. And so fish and, and, um, and meat, well, is one source of creatine. And, it's, and so, you know, one has to ask the question then, are vegetarians at risk of not having enough creatine? And there, there does seem to be that risk for people that don't have the same uh, protein sources that many of us do, uh, because creatine is a part of that. And there's no endemic production in the body? No, there is, but it doesn't seem to be um, really sufficient. So it could be sort of the incremental 
benefit. If, if uh, males are already consuming a lot of meat or, or good sources of uh, creatine, then the additional uh, infusion may not have that much of an incremental effect. Perhaps it's higher in the female. Yeah, you know, I mean, people started, yeah, it's, uh, it's not clear to me yet why we see these sex-based differences. Um, and it gets complicated. We certainly saw it in our mitochondrial studies. We saw it in our learning and memory behavioral studies. Um, and others have found it in clinical trials and in other animal studies. But there's more than one mechanism involved, and that's what complicates some of this. Um, so I, I think we just have to do a lot more work to look at, is it really beneficial? And if it is, is it more beneficial in females versus males? And how does it work? So one mechanism that we looked at, of course, you probably could guess, is that we some studies and our studies showed, suggested that creatine might stimulate um, or interfere with NF-kappa B pathways. So that's something that needs to be explored more carefully. Yeah, so in conclusion, Ben, you have done a lot of work in this area for a long time. Um, when we think about memory, there, there's sort of very complex phenomenon, right? There is um, sort of uh, getting information, storing it, retrieving it, using it, the different functions in the brain for all of these things. So, so, so where do you want to go with this research? Um, how do you think uh, NF-kappa-B uh, affects all these different functions of brain processing? Uh, for instance, you know, if you just sort of differentiate between storage of information, retrieval of information, I would imagine that there are differences there too, right? That, those are excellent points, and you're right. And most people don't understand that memory is complex. Not only there are time-dependent phases, uh, there are different regions of the brain that are involved in memory, and so there's a huge difference between short-term memory and long-term memory. And in fact, most biologists are confused. I think the psychologists understand this bit better is that there's also intermediate forms of memory. So the transition from short-term memory to long-term memory doesn't happen in a flash. It can take days to weeks to even months for memories to fully consolidate into long-term storage. The process begins in the hippocampus and memory encoding begins in the hippocampus. But then what happens, what, what most people believe is that the memory traces then reach out, so to speak, to different parts of the uh, different parts of the cortex. So long-term memories seem to be uh, really stored in different parts of the of the cortex. So, and this is part of the reason why, um, you know, once a, a, a memory is stored, it's stored in various locations in the in the cortex. And this is in and from an evolutionary point of view, an advantage because if the hippocampus gets damaged from trauma or from a stroke or from, um, or even from aging, you know, this is why we, we can retrieve these long-term memories because they're stored in different regions, but the hippocampus being so, so you know, a, a smaller component, if that's damaged, then you don't have that short-term to long-term conversion, if that makes sense, right? Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. So, so I'm thinking about therapeutic approaches here too. Um, so dementia, and I mean, you you look at all this uh, CNS disease states. Um, do you see uh, ways to bring 
bring them back uh, after you know the brain sort of gone into a bad state? Yeah, well, that's that's an interesting question. So I guess another way of saying it is: is dementia reversible? Is memory impairment reversible? And sometimes it is. Sometimes it's not. Um, and th that's what we have to figure out. But when it comes to, I'll just tie this in with NF kappa B. So when I first started studying NF kappa B in Mark's lab many years ago, I showed that uh, you could block that by blocking NF kappa B, you could interfere with the early encoding process. But then later on in my lab, when I studied NF-kappa B further, I was actually showing not that, not that it played a role in the induction of LTP in early, early phases of memory encoding. I was now showing that it also played a role in the protein synthesis step in later stages or late LTP. And that's why I wanted to make a point of saying that there are different stages of memory that are time dependent. Uh, early on, it seems like uh, mechanisms of memory are, are connected to these enzymes called kinases. But later on, mechanisms of memory involve protein synthesis. So, um, and so depending on what state you're in, uh, what time dependent stage you're in, you know, the drugs that we might use to, as tools in part, to understand how it works are gonna be different for early LTP or late LTP or early memory encoding. And then there's the whole process of reconsolidation. So maybe you have a long-term memory stored, but then you wanna bring it back. You wanna, you're thinking about something you haven't thought about for a long time that's been stored. Well, NF-kappa B appears to be involved in the reconsolidation of memories too. And so, and I'm not even talking about aging or disease, so there are a variety of scientists around the world that study NF-kappa B in all these different contexts, and it's very intriguing. Hmm. So there's a timing question. Um, so consolidation sometimes happens when you sleep, when you right. dream, and things like that too, right? Yeah, and in fact, I mean, it, there's, a, there's a huge effect on the body from sleep deprivation. We also know that A-beta, one of the, uh, proposed causative agents, although I don't believe it is, but it's at the very least if A-beta is associated with aging, um, it seems as if A-beta, amyloid beta, is actually cleared from the brain during sleep. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I don't know much about this, Ben, but there's sort of plumbing problems for the human body. <laughs> to, to yeah, get rid of these. Uh, clearance. clearance is a, yeah. a good way of uh, referring to it. And, and clearance of A-beta, clearance of other uh, you know, clearance is a thing not only in, in neurological science, but in other organs, too, that as we age, we don't clear toxic substances as quickly. And that includes the brain, too. That's right. Excellent. Yeah, this is great research, Ben. Thanks so much for spending time with me. Oh, thank you for the opportunity. And very nice to see you again. Thank you. Okay, thank you, Gil. Okay, bye-bye. Okay, This is a Scientific Sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com.